So we're, uh, we're going to continue this Reconnect series. Today we're going to be talking about reconnecting with the church. And y'all probably remember this whole thing, right, about, uh, you know, here, here's the church, you know, and here's the steeple. You know, open the doors and there's all the people. Y'all remember that? So, so there's a really cool thing where that guy gets turned on its head and he goes like this. Uh, here's the church and it's made up of people who worship in a building that's marked with a steeple. Because, you know, the building's a location, but the people, it, it's the people that are the church. And as I like to remind people, you know, ideas are, are, are really neat and clean and all that, but, you know, people, people are really complicated and messy. So we're going to talk a little bit today about being the messy church that we are. Let's pray. Oh Lord, come and be present with us on this Labor Day weekend as we gather and worship, and we thank you for the opportunity to be here and to lift our voices up to you. Let your spirit rest on us, open us to all you would say to us. May the words of my mouth, may the meditation of all of our hearts be acceptable in your sight, for you are our rock and our redeemer. Amen. <clears throat> now, you know, a couple of, about two weeks ago, I guess it was, uh, you know, we're still kind of unpacking things at the house as we're settling in. And, uh, and we found my mother's high school scrapbook. Now, remember, this is when high school went through grades 11. So she's probably, what, 16, 17, something like that. And we did it. And, and Ashlyn, was, uh, my daughter, was looking through all of it. And, and toward the end of it, there's a page where there's, there's a bunch of love letters. Uh, some of them written to her, some of them to her, to other people. And, and, you know, my daughter is reading through this. And, you know, she's having this revelation. You know, her grandmother at one time was young and involved with people romantically. And it was kind of, uh, kind of a, you know, rocking the, rocking the boat a little bit, you know, shattering the world a little, you know, her, you know, what, what, my, my grandmother was doing this? What, what? And, and, you know, and, you know, what I wanted to say, well, you know, of course your grandmother had a romantic life. How do you think you got here? Uh, but, but, you know, I thought that might be pushing it too far. Um, but, you know, it's interesting that, that these letters, sometimes you're only reading one side or the other of the conversation. And yet when you read them, you, you actually kind of can picture what the situation was. You can figure out the context and what was, what was going on and why this letter was written uh, one way or the other. There's a couple of Dear John letters in there, too. Uh, so, uh, you know, you kind of see these, uh, you know, kind of you get the pieces from the context. And Scripture is the same way. We don't often... I don't know how often we actually try to do this, but when you read it, you can kind of understand why it was written because it's not written in a vacuum. Uh, it, it's written in a certain context. So when we read like Psalm 133, it starts off, you know, how good and pleasant it is when God's people live together in unity. Notice the exclamation point there. Now, isn't the church supposed to be living together in unity anyway? And, and aren't we supposed to be doing that? But, but you get the impression from the way David writes this that actually that was a, kind of an exceptional event, right? How good and pleasant it is when God's people live together in unity. It's like precious oil poured on the head, running down the beard, running down on Aaron's beard, down the collar of his robe. It's as if the dew of Hermon were falling on Mount Zion. For there the Lord bestows his blessing, even life forevermore. I mean, you get the impression that, you know, okay, well, this is a wonderful thing, but it's not the norm. You know, I mean, that's why it's so wonderful when it happens. Because even back in David's time, the, the people of God were really messy, weren't they? Now, I want you to think about some Old Testament stories. See, Cain and Abel, 
Can you say fratricide? <laughs> Joseph and his brothers, envy, betrayal, Tamar and Judah, incest. You know, the people of God are really messy. God calls us to more, but we're, we're really messy. A couple of years ago when we were uh, reframing some of the language that uh, we use around here to talk about who we are, we came up with this call and purpose statement, which starts off by saying, God calls Bethany to be a community participating in God's mission of love, transforming us and the world. And there's some important pieces in that. It's really a pretty dense statement. First off, you understand it's community language, because as Thomas pointed out the other week in his sermon, you know, the references in Scripture are always to us in plural. You know, the, the, the body of Christ is a community. It's not individuals. It's, it's plural. It's the community. And God calls us to be that kind of a community that is participating in God's mission, not, not making our own mission and then asking God to bless it, but rather participating in the mission that God is already about, which is a mission of God's love transforming us and the world. Not, not just the world, but transforming us because we're pretty messy and we need that. We need that ongoing growth, that ongoing transformation that only happens in the power of God's love. This is, this is who we are. This is, this is what we're about, right? Uh, we're, we're called to be the church that, that comes together as a community. You know, that, there's, there's an old song, you know, right? I am the church and, and you are the church and we are the church together. And so we come together as this community to be changed and transformed. One of the illustrations I use is... Um, Talking about the church sometimes is that of a, a, a wheel. Uh, you know, in this case, a wheel with spokes. And in my younger years, uh, well, I'm still a car nut, but in my younger years, I was a pretty bad car nut. And, uh, and I, I, for a number of years, I, I had a 1967 Jaguar XKE type, and it had wire wheels on it. Now, you know, wire wheels look really wonderful, but I'm telling you, they're a royal pain. Because, you know, you got to tension all those spokes and everything has to be right. And, you know, if the spokes aren't right, you know, the wheel doesn't run true, which makes the car handle really dangerously. So, you know, you, you learn to have a lot of respect and care for them and, and do the maintenance on them. A regular wheel is so much easier. Uh, they look great, but they're a lot of work. Because, you know, when you have a wire wheel like this, the hub has to be really strong and intact. And in the church, that's, that's Jesus Christ. And, and those spokes have to attach strongly to it. Because if the spokes come loose from the hub, everything kind of goes, you know, where? The rim has to be really solid. That's the interface. That's where we interface. That's our mission, where we interface with the world. And if the rim gets cracked or busted, the wheel disintegrates. And each one of those spokes has to be connected strongly to the center and to the rim. You know, a spoke without a hub and without a rim is just a stick, basically. And, and if it's not connected strongly, that wheel doesn't hold up. And we're, we're called to be this. This is what we are. We're, we're this community that's participating in God's love, and we have to be anchored strongly in Christ and aware of and strongly engaged in the mission. That, that's what we're called to be. And yet we struggle to do that. And, and just like I struggle with those wire wheels all the time, we, we struggle to be the church the way God calls us to be. And, and yet... That's always been true. Remember, David's writing way back then, right? Oh, how wonderful it is when they live together in unity. Because even back then, they struggled. 
And when you read Paul's letters written to the communities, you, you kind of get further pictures of that. One of the, the more well-known ones is in 1 Corinthians, in uh, the 12th chapter of 1 Corinthians, when he's walking, to, uh, riding to this church that was uh, so cantankerous and argumentative with one another. And he starts off, he says, about the gifts of the Spirit, brothers and sisters, I do not want you to be uninformed. That's a really nice way of telling them you're uninformed. <laughs> so I'm going to straighten this out for you. I do not want you to be uninformed. You know that when you were pagans, somehow or other, you were, like that, somehow or other, you were influenced and led astray to mute idols. Uh, they had idols of stone. Uh, therefore, I want you to know that no one who's speaking by the Spirit of God says, Jesus be cursed. And no one can say Jesus is Lord except by the Holy Spirit, which tells you people were saying those things in this community. There are different kinds of gifts, but the same Spirit distributes them. There are different kinds of service, but the same Lord. There are different kinds of working, but in all of them and in every one, it's the same God at work. He's defining the hub, the hub of the church, God, Jesus Christ. Now, to each one, the manifestation of the Spirit is given for the common good. It's not given for your glory. It's not given so you can lord it over someone. It's not given to make you look good. It's given for the body. It serves the body, the community. To one there's given through the spirit a message of wisdom. To another a message of knowledge by means of the same spirit. To another faith by the same spirit. To another gifts of healing by that one spirit. Notice the emphasis on that hub. To another miraculous powers. To another prophecy. To another distinguishing between spirits. To another speaking in different kinds of tongues. And still, to still another the interpretation of tongues. All these are the work of one and the same Spirit, and He distributes them to each one just as He determines. The hub is strong, and, and the gifts are given as God needs them to be. Not as we want them to be, not as we desire, but as God needs them to be given and poured out to accomplish the mission that God is accomplishing. Just as a body, though one has many parts, but all its many parts form one body, so it is with Christ. For we were all baptized by one spirit so as to form one body, whether Jews or Gentiles, slaves or free. And we were all given the one spirit to drink. Even so, the body is not made up of one part, but many. Pointing out that it takes many of us to come together to make this animal work, to make this body function well. Now, if the foot should say, because I'm not a hand, I don't belong to the body, it would not for that reason stop being part of the body. And if the ear should say, because I'm not an eye, I do not belong to the body, it would not for that reason stop being part of the body. If the whole body were an eye, where would the sense of hearing be? If the whole body were an ear, where would the sense of smell be? But in fact, God has placed the parts in the body, every one of them, just as he wanted them to be. If they were all one part, where would the body be? As it is, there are many parts, but one body. It's understanding that different ones of us have different experiences. One of the, the things we tend to do is when we have a powerful experience of the presence of God, we tend to think that everybody needs to have that same experience. And if not, they're missing out. And Paul's reminding them, you know, there, there's, different, there's different experiences and there's different gifts. And all of this has to be honored and brought together in order for this community to function the way God intends for it to function. The eye can't say to the hand, I don't need you. And the hand can't, head can't say to the feet, I don't need you. On the contrary, those parts of the body that seem to be weaker are indispensable. And the parts that we think are less honorable, we treat with special honor. 
and the parts that are unpresentable are treated with special modesty, while our presentable parts need no special treatment, but God has put the body together. God has put this body together, giving greater honor to the parts that lacked it, so that there should be no division in the body, but that its parts should have equal concern for each one, each other. If one part suffers, every part suffers with it. If one part is honored, every part rejoices with it. Now you are the body of Christ, and each one of you is a part of it. So each of you is part of it. Each of you has a role to say. Uh, in the discipline of the church, of the Methodist church, early on, there's a part that says all baptized Christians, all baptized Christians are called to be part of the ministry of Christ. Not just those of us who you know, are professional at one part of it or another, but everyone who's baptized, every baptized follower of Christ has a part to play. And all those parts have to come together and be honored in order for the church to be the church. Interesting that part about, you know, if one part suffers, they all suffer. If one part rejoices, they all rejoice. You know, in Corinthians, you get the impression that they didn't think that's the way it was. You know, if I, if I got this and you don't have that, that makes me better than you. And if you don't like it, too bad. You know, I mean, that's just tough for you, right? But, but not this understanding that we're all in, in this together. And, and sometimes we, we tend to forget how connected we are. You know, when, uh, when our daughter was, was young, the, you know, she had that first night. Y'all remember this first night when the baby sleeps all night? Remember what that's like? And, and you're thinking, oh, oh, they're asleep. And then about 2 o'clock, my wife elbows me and says, get up and go see if she's still breathing. Any of you do that, right? Oh, she's awful quiet. Maybe she, you know. So I, I get up and I go, it's the room next door to our room in this house. And as I'm walking in there in the middle of the night, trying to be quiet, the little toe of my right foot catches the edge of the open door. And it snaps like a twig snapping. And so I'm hopping on one foot, going over there to check and make sure she's breathing. You know, and then I'm hopping back into the bedroom and I'm coming back in and my wife going, what are you doing? I was like, oh, I think I just broke my toe. And she's going, well, don't wake the baby. <laughs> right? Right? So now, you know, here's the deal. You know, really, you know, your little toe's hanging out down there in your shoe. Do you know what it's doing? I mean, you know, most of the time you walk around, I don't, I, you know, your little toes doing whatever little toes do down there in the shoe. You have no idea what it's doing down there. You're totally clueless as to what it's doing. But, but then when you break it, oh, all of a sudden it's talking to you. You know, every time you put on a shoe, every step you take, it's talking to you about, I hurt, I hurt. And you know, the, you're miserable all day long because your little toe hurts. The whole body suffers. And then the first day you get up and you put your shoe on, you walk out, and all of a sudden you realize, oh, it's not hurting. Your whole body rejoices because it's not hurting. Because we're connected. We're connected that way. And Paul reminds the Corinthians, you know, it's the same way in the body of Christ. And we suffer together and we rejoice together. It may get messy, but we're in it together. We're in it together. Now, now he's going to write more like this when he talks to the Ephesians. Again, so Christ himself gave the apostles, the prophets, the evangelists, the pastors and teachers, different kind of functions, to equip his people for works of service so that the body of Christ may be built up until we all reach unity in the faith and in the knowledge of the Son of God and become mature, 
attaining to the whole measure of the fullness of Christ. So what you need to hear in that is, you're not mature yet. That's what he's telling them. You know, hang in there, keep working together until we get there, but you're not there yet. That's why we have transforming us in that statement. We're still working on it. God's still working on us. We have not arrived. And he keeps going on to remind them, maybe. No, that's not, here it is. Then, then, when we arrive, then we will no longer be infants tossed back and forth by the waves and blown here and there by every wind of teaching and by the cunning and craftiness of people in their deceitful scheming. Now, now, do you suppose he's implying that people were like that in Ephesus? That they were scheming and crafty and, and trying to pull the church back and forth? Instead, speaking the truth in love, we will grow to become in every respect the mature body of him who is the head, that is Christ. From him, the whole body, joined and held together by every supporting ligament, grows and builds itself up in love as each part does its work. This reminder that we're still growing, we're still moving we're still becoming more mature we're becoming strengthened this idea that that, you know we're to be centered in Christ not in other things but we're to be centered in Christ as we move through uh, the pandemic in the middle of that and you know all that stuff got oh so political and we had the elections and all that kind of stuff was going on uh, and, and things got really challenging and difficult in the middle of that worse than normal worse than normal uh, it seems to me for the past 10 years or so that we have allowed the political kind of conversation, the, the adversarial nature of that, the divisiveness of that to float into the church, into the body. And so we've begun to use political kind of language and techniques to deal with things inside the body of Christ. Now, now I'm going to tell you, every year when we have election, every election year, you know, it's not a good, good happy time in, in our lives here because we sit on the Williamson-Travis County border. And so, you know, some people one, vote one way, some people vote the other. And, and every time we have an election, I have at least one person that comes to my office, usually more than one, who explains to me that I need to endorse this candidate or the other because good Christians would know they have to vote for this person. And when I try to explain to them, I'm not going to do that, every election, we lose a couple of families. Right? And we don't need to be blown here and there by every wind of teaching, right? We're, we're supposed to be grounded in Jesus. This is what we're supposed to be. This needs to be the hub, not the world out there, but, but Christ. In, in the middle of the pandemic, as a lot of the rhetoric heated up and things got really hot and the, and the election was coming on, Bishop Todd Hunter uh, posted something on his blog. He was reading N.T. Wright's book on the God and the Pandemic, and he posted this up on his blog, and I thought it was just really strong. Reading N.T. Wright's God and the Pandemic prompts me to give you his take on reframing the issues of the day. Put Jesus in the center of the picture and work out from there. We don't start thinking and responding via the frame of even extra-biblical theological constructs and schemes and then try to fit Jesus and the kingdom into those frames. It distorts, pollutes, and marginalizes Jesus every time. Start with Jesus and work out from there. 
We start anywhere else and we try to push Jesus into that model, we end up distorting the gospel. Start with Jesus. So as I was reading through uh, and we were going through all the pandemic, one of the other quotes I came across was a blog that my, my son posted up. He was reading uh, 2 Kings 17, uh, which is kind of a time in, in the history of Israel when people were kind of doing what they thought they should do instead of listening to God. And he was reading John Wesley's commentary on that. And so he, he kind of paraphrased that and threw this up on his blog. He said, all human beings, regardless of when or where we were born, now or 2,000 years ago, express a self-sufficiency that assumes there is no God, or at least there is no need to live a life of love and obedience to God. The only cure for this is to confess our need for Him and our need for others and immerse ourselves in a community that will hold us accountable. Sounds like the church, doesn't it, right? A place where you can confess your need for God and your need for others and be in a community that holds you accountable? That sounds like what the church is supposed to be. You know, on Sunday mornings, there's a group of us that text prayers back and forth uh, to each other before we get up and lead worship. And uh, one of the kind of pieces that recurs often in that texting uh, is a phrase that goes something like this, Jesus, this morning, less of me and, and more of you. You know, less of me and more of you, Jesus. And I'm just learning, that's, that's really a pretty powerful statement about what we need to be doing to be maturing and living into Jesus. Uh, I love it that Zach Williams has a song on the radio right now. You've probably heard this on K-Love or somewhere like that. And the chorus of it goes like this. Uh, a little more like mercy, a little more like grace, a little more like kindness, goodness, love, and faith. A, a little more like patience, a little more like peace. A little more like Jesus, a little less like me. Yeah. Yeah. When we put ourselves first, we push God out. I mean, less of me, more of you, Jesus. And, and when I think about people that have done that in their lives and, and how that's played out, uh, one of the people I think about is uh, Brother Lawrence. Uh, Brother Lawrence came from a wealthy family, and when he entered the monastery, perhaps because he came from a wealthy family, they decided he probably needed to learn some humility, so they gave him the worst tasks. He scrubbed the floors and the toilets and washed the pots and pans. And, and he got in this habit of every time before he would take on a task, he would pray, okay, Lord, I'm getting ready to do whatever it is he was doing. I'm getting ready to do this. And I ask that you guide me as I do it, that I may do it in a way that brings honor and glory to you. And then at the end of that, Remember, he's scrubbing toilets and floors and washing pots and pans. At the end of that, he would come back and say, Lord, I, I offer this work up to you. I hope it brings glory to you. If there's a way I could have done it better, please show me. Uh, and if I've done it well, please let me know that I've done it well. And he began this practice of praying over everything that he did. And, and as there was less of him and more of Jesus in everything he did... There was a transformation that took place in who he was. And people began to come from all over Europe to visit with him. To say, how is this happening? What are you doing? Less of me and more of you, Jesus. When Mother Teresa first began her ministry, 
She was uh, working at common and expected, you know, to, to rise up through the ranks of the nuns. And instead what happened was uh, she kind of got shuffled off uh, into India to work with the untouchables and those that no one else would minister to. And she struggled with that at first, but as she worked with them and gave herself away to them, there was a richness and a transformation that took place in her life. And one of the things she talked about was, I'm here to be a window for Christ. When people encounter me, I don't want them to see me. I want them to see Jesus. And to the extent that they see me, that means I've failed. To the extent that they see Jesus, that brings glory to God. Less of me, less of me, more of you, Jesus. It makes all the difference. It makes all the difference in the messiness of the church if we understand that it's really about being less about me and more about Jesus. When I was still doing youth ministry, uh, our, our church that I worked at at that time took a, a group of uh, kids every summer to uh, Appalachia Service Project. And we worked on the project out there. And uh, the year uh, before, the year I'm talking about now, uh, the previous year we'd had the, a, a huge group of uh, kids that had gone with us, uh, youth that had gone with us, and it had been kind of a logistical nightmare. It was such a big group, it was just hard to handle, it was hard to transport, it was hard to keep up with everybody, it just, it just got out of hand. And so we decided that we were going to need to put some limits on this trip, and one of the ways we did that was we had the, the youth that wanted to go, they filled out an application and talked about why they wanted to go, and, uh, and then we sat down and kind of went through that. And uh, uh, one of the saints of that church, Bert Jones, uh, was, was working with me to do this, and the kids that we thought weren't quite really ready for ASP, we had another mission trip that they could go on. So they, it wasn't that they didn't get to do anything, but, but it was kind of a selective kind of piece about which trip they did. Uh, so we were working our way through this, trying to keep the number down to 40, no more than 40 going on this trip, and, and working through this. And in the middle of it, this, uh, this woman that was a member of the church comes and says, I really want you to take my son on this trip. And we said, well, we, 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 we've not heard anything from him. We don't have an application from him or anything. And so she starts telling us about how she and her husband had been divorcing over the last year. And it was really acrimonious. And the son had got caught in the crossfire of that and was being chewed up so much. And, and they, they tried to do counseling and so forth, and it just wasn't working. And he was really starting to engage in some destructive kinds of behavior. And she just knew that if he could go on this trip with this group of kids and be involved in this mission, that that, that would open him up for God to touch his life. And so I, I kind of went, oh, man, I don't, I don't think so, Bert. You know, this is really, you know, this is a mission trip. It's not really a therapy session. And, and Bert, Bert said, no, no, we need to do it. And, you know, Bert being the saint of the church he was, I, I thought, okay, well, I'm going gonna, I'm gonna to cede to your wisdom on this. And, uh, and so we agreed to take this young man with us. And so uh, his name really wasn't John. I'm just going to refer to him that way uh, as we went through that. And, uh, and so we got ready to leave and, and head to, to uh, Appalachia that year. And, uh, and it started off bad. He showed up and it wasn't packed properly, didn't bring what he was supposed to have, had too much of other things. We had to repack everything he brought, send some of it home with his mother. Uh, he started off angry uh, and we started off late. We left late because of this and some of the other people were irritated and, and, and it just kept going like that. He was uncooperative. Uh, he didn't do what we asked of him. Uh, we were always having to hunt him up and find him. We were always running late because of, of, of things that he was doing and his unwillingness to work with us. And, and, and so 
by the time we got to our work site where we were going to be, already there was a lot of friction around this, and people were feeling hard about that. And, uh, and as the week went on, it just got worse. Uh, you know, he, he didn't cooperate. He didn't help. He didn't participate. Um, about the third or fourth day into the trip, uh, he wouldn't get up in the morning, and some of the other students that were there drug him outside in his sleeping bag, put a hose in the bag, and turned the water on to get him up. And we realized then we're, we're going to have to kind of watch this. Uh, you know, I mean, it's, it's, it's becoming an issue and a problem, and we kind of had to keep boundaries around him and make sure he didn't get hurt. Uh, and then on the way home, after this long week when, when we'd struggled with this, on the way home, we always stopped and had a little time to kind of uh, debrief uh, for the kids to process and everything. And, and so we arrived at our location where we were doing that. And the first night we were going to have a communion service. And, and as I'm, you know, getting unpacked and doing that, I'm hearing the other students talking about John and, and the things that they would like to do to him. And it's not good. I mean, it's really not good. So I gathered some of the leaders together, and, and I read them that part in you know, Matthew 5 about, you know, if you're getting ready to come to the altar and leave your offering, and you've got something against your brother, before you bring your offering, you go and make that straight with your brother before you come to the altar. I read that to them, and, and I said, okay, so we're going to have communion in about an hour, and uh, I just want you to think about that and pray about that, and, and you know, see what you think you need to do. Um, and I didn't know what would happen when I threw that out there. I just, I just thought it's worth a shot. And amazingly, those student leaders went and they sought him out and they sat down with him and they were pretty upfront with him about why they were irritated with him. But they also invited him to share about why he was doing this. And so they came back and started this conversation. And an hour later when we got ready to do communion, they brought him with them to the table shared in communion, and they prayed over him. And through the rest of the summer, they, they shepherded him and prayed with him and worked with him. And it was amazing the change took place when, when they all decided that it was going to be less about their irritation and annoyance and more about what Jesus wanted to happen. When we came to the end of the summer, I had both of his parents saying, what did you do to our kid? Uh, I'm thinking it was a good thing, you know, and they're going, well, you know, we, don't, we hardly recognize him. He's not acting like the same kid. You know, did y'all brainwash him? No, we don't do brainwashing. Well, did, are y'all giving him medication or something? No, we can't do that. What, what, what happened? Less of me, more of you, Jesus. It makes all the difference in transforming us and transforming the world. So the great theologian Karl Barth uh, was one time asked what was the most important thing that he had learned. Now remember this is New Testament, Old Testament scholar, uh, writer of theological works. Uh, he's one of the towering figures of the 20th century in theology. And somebody said what, what is the most important thing you learned? And he paused for a minute, and then he said this. Jesus loves me, this I know, for the Bible tells me so. Little ones to him belong. We are weak, but he is strong. 
Yes, Jesus loves me. You know this. Yes, Jesus loves me. Yes, Jesus loves me. The Bible tells me so. I want you to say this with me. Jesus loves me. I know. Jesus loves me. This I know. Now I want you to say this to each other. Jesus loves you. This I know. Jesus loves you. This I know. Now let's all say this together. Not, not, not. We are a family of blessing. Jesus loves us. And this we know. Because the Bible tells us so. Less of us, more of Jesus. Let's pray. Mighty God, we give you thanks that you gather us here together in worship. Here we are, your, your messy people. We arrive with all of our faults, all of our failures. So, so just be with us and hear us as we come into your presence. Uh, we long for there to be less of us and more of Jesus. Amen.